So, Will. Yes? This week's movie could only be described as an adult film. In that it is a film about adults that no child would find anything they would enjoy in it. Which is a shame because I found so much that I enjoyed in it. There is so much to enjoy. I did text you that this movie made me feel like I was on the old beach, but not in a bad way. It just made me feel like all of a sudden I was 50 years old. (laughs) I did not know what you meant in that text, and I chose to ignore it, figuring that you would explain. Yes. I just, like, I started this movie, I got about 10 minutes in, and I was like, am I aging? Am I old now? But I did enjoy the movie. But I am curious, Yeah. what are some of your other favorites of movies that could only be described as what we could also say as movies for grown-ups? You know, I'm glad that you said that because I was going to say it. You said adult films. I like to think of these as movies for grown-ups. Dumbest name. I'd like to say, by the way, like two months ago, somehow, I don't remember how, the AARP Movies for Grown-Ups Awards that I write the Wikipedia pages for came up in one of my classes. And a student asked me, like, what they were, and I explained it. And then another student said, okay, because when you mentioned it at the start of the year, I thought you meant adult films. <laughs> and she had spent, like, the whole year shocked that I was, like, casually talking about how I write Wikipedia pages about, like, pornography. Oh, my God. Imagine if you just openly admitted at your Catholic school that you were the primary Wikipedia editor for porn awards. When instead I write about, like, the most wholesome awards. There's, like, the Dove Awards, and then right underneath it, the AARPs. What is the most scandalous movie they've nominated that you've seen? Um, I mean, it's definitely something, if I can get in the weeds on the, uh, the M for Gs, it's definitely something in the early years of the awards, because early on, they were pretty silly about it. Like, that's the period where, in Best Grown-Up Love Story... They once nominated the Penguins from March of the Penguins. Oh my god. So silly. They were just in a silly, goofy mood. They used to be goofy. And, like, back then, the trophy was a golden, like, lazy boy chair. (laughs) Like, a little trophy shaped like an old person's chair. I love that. Yeah, but basically, as they have succeeded in getting more attention for themselves, they have also gotten less fun. The dude who started the awards left... AARP in 2017 and at that point they discontinued like all of the silliest categories like that's when they got rid of best movie for grown-ups who refused to grow up I think that's a good category it's a great category they sometimes pick good move like they pick some cool stuff in there but I don't know I I don't tend to like see things in there where I'm like it's kind of crazy that AARP went for that it's usually stuff like they just dig up movies that barely exist like in this year's Movies for Grown-Ups, which, as we're recording, have not yet happened, but by the time this episode comes out, we will know the winners. They, like, went really hard for this movie called The Duke, where Jim Broadbent... Oh my god, I saw one trailer for that recently. Yes, you saw a trailer for that recently, because it has not come out in the United States at all at the time of nominations. But the Movie for Grown-Ups were like, boom, actor, actress, best grown-up love story, nominated in three categories, The Duke! Oh my god. And here's the thing, I'm gonna see it. Okay, Will, but this begs the question, what is one of your favorite movies for grown-ups? Yeah, so I was thinking about this, and I went back and looked through my spreadsheets of my personal Oscar nominations for the last several years, 
I've been keeping them for basically as long as we've been doing the podcast. And I felt like the ones that fit were mostly like very sort of heady dramas. So something like a first reformed. Like I have a hard time imagining a kid sitting down for two hours of Ethan Hawke journaling about being a minister and trying to figure out why God would allow the climate crisis to happen. Uh, I mean, that is fair. Like, I think it's a great movie. I have a hard time imagining kids finding it that interesting. I guess in my head, I was also thinking more in the rom-com romance genre, I'm realizing. But it is much broader than that. Yeah, there are so many kinds of adult film. Like, the first adult film I thought of was Sideways, a movie... Okay, that's a great example. ...about wine drinking, something kids don't like to do, with very few jokes that aren't about, like, annoying adult problems. Uh, It's also kind of a bummer, but in a funny way. Like, yeah, I, I think that's a movie that kids would have a hard time understanding what makes it funny. Right. They're like, why are these people not just losers? It's like, well, they are. Yes. I also did think about Eat, Drink, Man, Woman, the Ang Lee movie that we covered, which is just like a quiet family romance-ish drama that I really enjoy because there's a lot of scenes of cooking. Yeah, I and mean, if we're going into the foreign language fear, which itself can be a barrier for some kids, like these students of mine who were annoyed that I didn't tell them Parasite was not in English, like Parallel Mothers is a movie that I think kids would have a hard time really connecting to, or even maybe The Lost Daughter, where, you know, something those movies have in common and have in common with this movie we're talking about this week is they're movies that are very much wrestling with parenthood. Mm. And I think that if you're at an age where, on some level, even if you have a good relationship with your parents, you exist in your own head to some degree in opposition to them, it can be hard to latch on to those kinds of stories. Yeah. This week's movie, I know it's cliche to say, but it really just doesn't exist anymore. Like, this type of movie. No, a movie about, like, people over the age of 40, like, quietly living their lives in the present day? No, no, that movie doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. And it's sad. I When I said, I've never heard of this movie, and you said, Julia Louis-Dreyfus, James Gandolfini in a rom-com. And I said, sold. Written and directed by Nicole Holof Center. Yeah. It's just so detached from the type of movie you watch now. And it was so good. And then you didn't even say that it had Catherine Keener and Toni Collette in it. Okay, but Toni Collette is like a a threat in this movie. She's a menace. Uh, J. Jonah Jameson is demanding photos (laughs) of Toni Collette in this movie. I have long said that we need to just accept that Nicole Kidman is Australian and let her be Australian. Toni Collette being Australian is threatening. It felt like she was threatening me. After Tony Collette's first line in the movie, I paused it and I turned to my fiance and I said, do you know that Tony Collette is Australian? And she said, no, I didn't know that. And I said, I had it in my head, but I had never witnessed it. Really. I knew it, but I didn't know it. Right. And it, it did. It felt like a personal attack every time she spoke on screen. <laughs> it's so weird how thrown off i was by her being australian also because like this winter i watched all the jane campion movies along with the blank check miniseries so i've been hearing a lot of australia and new zealand accents and i wasn't supposed to be in this movie and it was kind of disconcerting because of that as well and i mean there's nothing wrong if they had cast nicole kidman in that part i would have said she should be australian 
it's not related to that. It is exclusively tied to the image I have of Tony Collette in my head. And if Tony Collette wants to use her Australian accent in movies, she needs to get me acclimated to it by doing a tribute to AMC at the start of every movie I go to. That, or she gets me acclimated to it by being bad at an American accent just enough that I'm like, okay, you need to give up. We're fully talking about this movie at this point. Oh, yeah. We have not started the show. So let's do that now. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm Yay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is a podcast dedicated to examining the least important issue facing our world. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these adults actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation, uh, but to our great benefit, it is the focus of this movie. And so we're going to get to talk about a real delight, Nicole Holof Center's 2013 middle-aged rom-com, Enough Said, starring, as you said, Julia Louis-Dreyfus and James Gandolfini. I didn't know what to expect, but this is just a quiet movie about two divorced people in their 40s meeting at a party, dating, and having relationship trouble. It is also ludicrously funny. Oh, it's so funny. But it does it without, like, big jokes. It is just the, like, simple silliness and awkwardness of observed life like the massage client who won't stop talking it helps that it's jessica st Clair who is someone like a comedian i know of but just the idea of dealing with that client who just never stops talking the whole time you're massaging her it's so funny to me yeah so i had never seen this movie although i was definitely aware of it when it came out i just i don't know why i didn't uh i was dumb but i was at the uh I was at the record exchange, which for me is a used video store. And I found a Blu-ray still in the shrink wrap, bought it, sent you a picture and said, we're doing it. And it's also on HBO Max. Yeah, I'd really strongly encourage people to watch this movie. It's 90 minutes. And it's what we've been saying it is. It is just a lovely movie about adults. I will say, I would not have liked this that much in 2013, I don't think. Oh, of course not. Yeah, I was 19. I would not have appreciated this movie very much. There's also the factor of, in 2013, I had not yet seen The Sopranos. I mean, I still haven't seen The Sopranos. I was going to say, I didn't think you had, and I've just been watching it recently. Uh, Hot take, it might be the best TV show ever made. (laughs) But, you know, I think James Gandolfini's performance stands on its own as, like, a great piece of acting. But it is so striking as a departure from the kind of roles he got to play in the wake of Tony Soprano where he spent a lot of time like being the heavy in other movies, like being somebody who's intimidating. Um, This is one of his two posthumous releases. The other one again is like a crime thriller. And there is something like on a meta textual level that is sort of joyful about getting to see him do something this gentle. Yeah. He's just a nice guy. I've heard he's not that nice in The Sopranos. No, he's uh, he's a mob boss, believe it or not. Yeah, that doesn't sound very nice. He's so nice in this. And he kills people. Albert would never kill people. Albert would never kill people. And so I think, like, the metatextual element of that does help this movie. But there's also, like, the sad metatextual element, which is he shoots this movie in 2012. It premieres at TIFF in 2013. And, like, exactly between those two points, he dies. Yeah. That that was very sad to learn. And the movie's dedicated to him. 
But you watch this and you're like, this should have opened up a whole new chapter of his career. Like, this feels like the beginning of a new James Gandolfini, and instead it's it's the only thing. Yeah, I would have loved to have seen more performances like this. And he does do he does do other stuff besides this and, like, Sopranos-types characters. I like him a lot in, in The Loop, which is the Armando Iannucci movie that he did, where he plays a general who's trying to stop a war from getting started. Yeah, I don't know if I've seen him much in other things, but I do know of him, obviously. But he's just so calm and funny in this and i mean he's just turning in a great performance against and i can't imagine it's easy holding your own against julia louis dreyfus that's 19 time emmy award nominee julia louis dreyfus for you possibly the funniest person alive yeah imagine going in you're known as tony soprano you're put against the funniest person out there and you have to hold your own it'd be intense and he manages it Good for him. And you don't have that much time because they shot this movie in 24 days. Oh my, what? Tangerine is shot for more days than this movie. That's, how? How did they do that? Not that many locations as part of it. Yeah, I mean, but still, that is crazy. Part of the deal with this was after Holof Center's previous movie, Please Give, some producers at Fox Searchlight came out to her and they were like, hey, we really love what you do. Like, we would love to produce your next movie. Could you please make something a little more mainstream than your sort of caustic and alienating comedies? I guess. It's... She did it. Yeah. Oh, my God. I just think that some of the other plot lines going on in this are so good, too. Like, we keep talking about the romance, the center point. Obviously, we love the love. But just the relationship between her and her daughter's best friend, I found very compelling watching that plot line play out. Yeah, I like that a lot because what it is is, like, it's the two of them reach, like recognizing that their life currently is not working the way that they would like it to and reaching out for some different kind of support. This is a movie about being an empty nester at its core. This is a movie about your kid moving out and how to process that. And that's made textual when she has the brunch date over at Albert's house. And she's like, I guess we're going to have to get hobbies. Right. You all of a sudden have so much more free time. Right. Like, I think one of the most sort of helpful touchstones for me in the movie as someone who is not a parent is the scene where she is at the dress shop. While her daughter is like trying on clothes and she's just sitting there knitting. And it's like, right, a decent chunk of being a parent is like sitting around while your kid does stuff. Or like waiting to pick them up or like killing time effectively. That blanket, her knitting. Well, if she if she finishes the blanket, then her kid will leave her. Yeah, but also her kid will leave her. So she needs to finish the blanket. And she does. She does. Impressively. Nicole Hall of Center did say that she very much based this movie on being a divorced parent with kids approaching college who is also trying to start dating. The whole thing about, like, everything Albert does, like, scooping guacamole out of a bowl, is apparently specifically based on a story that Hall of Center's boyfriend told about his ex-wife. I mean, you can tell that this is lifted from lived experiences. Everything is so grounded and realistic, except for Catherine Keener (laughs) being a poet. I love the moment when (laughs) Julia Louis-Dreyfus meets Catherine Keener at the party, and Keener's like, I'm a poet. And Julia Louis-Dreyfus is basically like, ha sure, like, I'm a singer-songwriter. And Keener's like, 
no, I'm I'm really a poet. <laughs> it was so good. Because she's just pretentious and annoying enough to be slightly unsettling, but not enough that you are confused why Eva would be hanging out with her. Right, there's something compelling about her, but she's full of crap. Yeah, I mean, Catherine Keener is the best casting they could have gone with for that role. Yes, she is also very good friends with Hall of Center, and it is in basically all of her movies. Yeah, I'm not surprised, but I think that she manages that compelling pulling you in personality while being slightly annoying and off-putting at the same time very well oh yeah for sure so that's how keener comes into this movie like she's good friends with hall of center right julia louis dreyfus sought out nicole hall of center and said hi i would like to be in a nicole hall of center movie which great move if you can get away with it yeah if you're 19 great move <laughs> if you have seven emmys 19 time nominated We've been talking about how this movie is better for us watching it in 2022 rather than in 2013. There is an alternate universe where this would be much better to have watched in 2013 than now, which is the universe where Louis C.K. accepted when he was cold offered the role. Oh, I read that and I was just like, thank God that didn't happen. Yeah. And it's a thing where like in 2013, I get it. It would actually be pretty interesting casting. Yeah, but it would be sad that we couldn't watch it anymore. Right. It's like, thank goodness he said no. And also, I think Louis would have been good in this movie. I don't think he would have been as good as Gandolfini. I think you need someone who's not trying to be funnier than Julia Louis-Dreyfus in most things that she is in. I think that he would be, based off of what we know about him now, I think he'd be threatened by the fact that she is better than him. Ah, uh, yes. And it wouldn't have been good. But I think that with James Gandolfini, he kind of lets Ava shine while holding his own. It's crazy that Louis C.K. had a movie scheduled to come out in fall 2017. Oh my god. I forgot about that. God, what a I think he just like released it through his website or something. But like, those are the ones that like are the weirdest to me. The ones that were like fully ready to go. Like that Woody Allen movie that like never got released. Yeah. Huh. God, he was such, <laughs> He's such a creep. Yes. Uh, bad dude. Yes. Thank goodness he was not in this lovely movie. Yeah. And the movie, like, it's a it's a pretty small movie. You know, it's made by Searchlight for $8 million. It did premiere at Toronto, like I said. You know, it had an attendantly small release. But it did pretty well for that. It made $17 million in the U.S., which is not bad for, like, a nice little movie that's really just playing in, like, independent theaters. It did get some awards attention. Uh, they got Indie Spirit nominations for screenplay and for supporting actor. Julia Louis-Dreyfus got a Golden Globe nomination, which is pretty cool. Yeah. And James Gandolfini got a posthumous SAG Award nomination for supporting actor. And he lost to Jared Leto in Dallas Buyers Club, because that's the one that we were all on that year. Did this not get nominated for any AARP Movie for Grown Ups Award? Mark, this was nominated for... Four AARP movies for Grown Ups Awards. Well, you better get on that Wikipedia page and edit it. Yeah, it's not on the Enough Said Wikipedia page, um, which is a little annoying, so I should make that change. It is if you go to the Wikipedia page for the 13th AARP Movies for Grown Up Awards. I'm guessing Best Movie for Grown Ups, Best Director, and then the two actors? No, actually. it's They got nominated for Director, Actress, Screenwriter... And then they won for Best Grown-Up Love Story. Oh, I forgot that was a category. Yeah. You gotta keep Grown-Up Love Story in your head. It beat out Before Midnight, Lee Daniels' The Butler, 
some Canadian movie called Still Mine, and a Terrence Stamp Vanessa Redgrave romance called Unfinished Song. Why was there no award for best grown-up love story in 2019? Um, are you, are you looking at the Wikipedia page? I am. So if we circle back to what I was talking about earlier, since the departure of Bill Newcott, founder of the AARP Movies for Grown-Ups Awards, they have been a little all over the place. And what that has meant is some categories fully disappeared, like movie for grown-ups who refused to grow up. And other ones have like come and gone. Like best grown-up love story, inexplicably not awarded in 2019. Best buddy picture, not awarded in 2011, 2017, or 2018. In 2019, they announced nominees and never announced a winner in just that category. That's so weird. I did scroll yeah. through this list and it reminded me of another adult movie that was very good, which was Private Life with Katherine Hodd and Paul Giamatti. I have actually not seen Private Life, but I always mix it up with Wildlife with Jake Gyllenhaal and Carrie Mulligan. I don't know what that one is, but it is a good movie. Another very small movie about middle-aged love. I forgot they nominated Crystal Skull for Grown-Up Love Story. That is a hilarious choice. That's back when they were funny. That year, So 2008, Last Chance Harvey wins, which whatever. The other nominees are Knights in Rodanthe, Mamma Mia, Crystal Skull, and Step Brothers. Uh, this, they used to be fun. Yeah. Whereas like this year, this year the nominees for Best Grown-Up Love Story are... Uh, something called 23 Walks, which is just, you know, another British people in love, old British people in love movie. And then Belfast, Cyrano, The Duke, and Macbeth. I feel like Macbeth is not a love to aspire to, personally. No, I will grant the relationship in that adaptation is really compelling. So if you're just doing like, Best movie about a grown-up love story, I will grant Macbeth. Fair. I guess it doesn't say anything about an aspirational love story. Yeah. I think it's probably going to be Belfast, but I would hope it was the Duke just for the chaos of it. Oh. Okay. So, now that we have done our second AARP movie for grown-ups corner, I think we should probably start talking about the romance of Enough Said. Okay. I mean, that's most of the movie, so that'll let us talk about pretty much everything. Yeah. So, every week we break down the romantic plotline into five points. Will, will you take us to point numero uno? Okay, so, Julia Louis-Dreyfus plays Eva, who is a masseuse. She's divorced. She has a daughter who is about to graduate high school and head off to college. And she is sort of preemptively feeling adrift, thinking about what her life will be like at that point. Uh, Eva was just telling me that there are no men at this party that she's attracted to. Okay. <laughs> I don't know why you would make that announcement. Really? But, um, Is that unusual? No, actually. To be honest, it's not unusual. No offense. No, no, that's okay. It's okay. There's no one here I'm attracted to either. <laughs> okay. All right. Yeah, it's kind of an ugly crowd, really. <laughs> Jason, you've got a kid in college now, right? Two. I have one leaving in the fall. Oh, I do too. That's all I have. Me too. Come on, guys. Your kids are supposed to go away, right? I mean, that's healthy. No. Shut up. Yeah, shut up. One night, her best friend, Tony Collette, and Tony Collette's husband, Ben Falcone, known in real life as the husband of Melissa McCarthy and director of all of her worst movies. Oh, yeah. It was weird seeing him show up, because I now mostly associate him as director of the bad Melissa McCarthy movies. 
It's weird how easy it is to predict if a Melissa McCarthy movie will be good or not just by looking to see if her husband directed it. She's so good. Like, that's the number one predictor. When he is not directing. And this is your periodic reminder that both Melissa McCarthy and Rose Byrne should have been at least nominated for, if not won, Oscars for the film Spy. Also, Bridesmaids. Um, I have only seen Bridesmaids once, and it was a long time ago, but the two of them in Spy are just incredible. You should rewatch Bridesmaids. I was hanging out at Nick's parents' apartment or hotel room when they were in town, and Jim likes to just have the TV on. And it was on Bridesmaids, and it was very annoying because I, like, was trying to engage in the conversation. But it's just so distracting to have Bridesmaids on because I know it well enough that I could, even without hearing the sound, I could watch it and enjoy it. How was Spy not nominated for Best Buddy Picture by the AARP Movies for Grown Ups Awards? <laughs> the buddies between her and Rose Byrne? They've nominated weirder movies. I would not consider them buddies. I guess for like 30 seconds they are. Last year they gave the win to Defive Bloods. Okay. They nominated the two popes for best buddy picture. Oh my, okay. That's, that's chaos. Yeah. Wow. Don't tell me they can't nominate Spy. Okay, I am back on board. One of my favorite images in movies is Melissa McCarthy describing shoving her hand up someone's ass and her fist down their throat and playing the accordion with his heart, which is, I think, the one that makes him cry. So anyway, Julia Louis-Dreyfus is going with Tony Collette and Melissa McCarthy's husband to a party just so she can, like, get out and interact with some people. She's not not there to meet a man. Yeah, she is, like, kind of told that she should meet a person at this party. Yes. And she meets Catherine Keener, who is a poet with some witch vibes. And then she also meets and starts chatting with James Gandolfini, who is basically just a nice dude. That's really He's charming. all he is. They're having a lovely, jokey conversation about how nobody at the party is attractive. He's just a nice guy who has some quirks about guacamole. He's so friendly. And he works for a TV archive. Which is really cool. I didn't know places like that existed. Granted, we can do that online now. So we don't need to go sit in a library. You can sort of do that online. Yeah. Like the kind of old TV he's talking about. Like when he's talking about like going into his office and watching old episodes of variety shows. You're limited in what you can find in that. Yeah. I will say his whole like the classic Luddite, you know, everyone's on their phones too much these days moments always kind of make me roll my eyes and lose interest because no one is on their phone as much as my grandfather playing his word cookies. Oh yeah, the person in my family who is on his phone the most is my dad. So that always loses me, but I do appreciate his love of old TV. Yeah, it's great. There's of course some requisite housewives bashing because it's 2013. There are a lot of very 2013 things in this movie, like a reference to housewives, a Pinkberry date, my god, the Pinkberry date. Froyo. Remember when we all went on Pinkberry dates? Ugh, Froyo. It still exists, which I find funny, but boy did it shrink. Also in a 2013 thing, I love the joke when Tony Collette is like, you can watch TV, but no Cleveland show. And it's like, her kids are obsessed with the Cleveland show. <laughs> oh my god, that made me laugh so hard. It's like, I probably haven't thought about that show in 10 years. And the idea that there's like a seven-year-old and it's his favorite thing. Wow. So they meet at the party. They have a good time. That's pretty much it. 
Importantly, Catherine Keener has taken her card as a masseuse. Yeah, so so Eva Julia Louis Dreyfus is gonna start massaging Catherine Keener, and like that's nice. It's a new client, someone who seems chill that she can talk to. But our transition to point number two really happens when Eva is told that Albert asked Ben Falcone for her phone number. And at first, she's kind of hesitant because you yeah. know he looks like James Gandolfini. And she did kind of write him off at first. Yeah. But then decides to just go for it. Yeah, she's like, go on a date. And they have just like this lovely, funny, but it's the kind of thing where it's like, you don't feel like you are watching comedians firing jokes back and forth. It feels like slightly funnier than average, slightly more charming than average people on a believable date. Yes, that that is a great way of putting it. You know, you have... Lovely hands. Oh. I thought as a masseuse you'd probably have big muscular hands, but they're very lovely. Thank you. You have nice hands too, actually. <laughs> kind of like paddles. <laughs> Did they just turn the music louder? No. I think that you just got older. <laughs> Oh, um, excuse me. Do you mind turning down this music a little bit? I'm, I'm, I'm old. No, I'm sorry. No, you're sorry that I'm, I'm old, or that you won't turn the music down. I'm not allowed to change it, ma'am. He's so nice. I find that I don't like younger people. And? <laughs> I'm sorry. I picked the wrong restaurant. Oh, I'm having a great time. This is delicious. I mean, I can't hear anything you're saying, but... That's probably why you're having a great time. (laughs) It's like watching how you hope you behave in those circumstances. Yeah, it's like you on your very best day. And that's the delight of a movie like this one, where you can feel the craft of the screenplay, but it's not like Aaron Sorkin, where the delight is, yeah, nobody talks like this, and like that's the fun. What if we were all ludicrously eloquent? You're feeling the screenplay and like, Right, what if, like, the best version of myself or the most interesting version of myself were the one that's always talking? Yeah, I really love that. But they go on a date. They don't kiss after the first date, but it is a Oh my gosh, that's horrible. What? It's horrible when they don't kiss. Like, they're having a great time. They talk about how there are manly designs at the container store. They get Pinkberry, and then he's dropping her off back at home, and there is this awkward moment where, like, she doesn't get out of the car. Like, they've sat for a moment, and then he, like, goes for a kiss, and she leans away, and he's like, oh, you don't you don't want to kiss. And she says, maybe. Oh, it was so painful. Yeah, it it's, ah, uh, <laughs> it, it's so awfully uncomfortable. And part of what I think is, is nice about this movie is so often the nice person in a romantic comedy is either, like, the Baxter, like Bill Pullman in Sleepless in Seattle, or... It's like a Ted Mosby type where it's like the nice person is your lead. And like, why can't people just be with this nice person? But it's because they're actually terrible. Right. And here, our lead is the bad person. And so we're following her making poor decisions and yelling at her because there's such a nice guy right there. Oh, yeah. She's making bad decisions in this and with her daughter. She makes like not inappropriate jokes in terms of content, but more in terms of timing. She is the annoying one. But they do start dating. She goes yeah. over to his place for brunch. He doesn't put on pants. 
it's so funny when she goes over for brunch and she's like got like a nice brunch outfit and she's got a bottle of champagne and he answers the door in sweatpants and like a junkie t-shirt he's like what it's sunday brunch at home yeah and like the brunch itself is like at first when she walked in and there was like a plate of bagels on the table i was like is this brunch just bagels I will say the movie does also a really good job of making him just schlubby enough that it would be slightly irritating. Right, yes. Like, he's not perfect. It's your second date. You shouldn't wear PJs, even if it's right. at your house. And and there is the detail of, like, why does this adult man not own a bedside table? Right. These are little things that would be annoying. Yeah. But they're having a great time at this little brunch. Uh, there's a very funny moment where his dick pops out of his pajama pants, and when he goes away to fix it, he asks her what he, what she thinks. Yeah. Then, is this where they have sex for the first time? First, it's where they have a great kiss! Oh, yeah. They're sitting out on the back porch, and they have, like, the cutest kiss. These two. I wrote yay kissing in my notebook. These two. So adorable. They're so cute together. And then, yes, then they go and they have sex for the first time. So, while this is happening, she's also massaging Catherine Keener, the poet, who is also divorced. And so, they're basically, you know, classic. So, what? why did you get divorced? Talking about their ex-husbands. Yeah. And Eva has also been talking about this new guy that she's been seeing. Yeah. And they're bonding. They're moving past, you know, some professional boundaries. Not in a bad way. But things are getting more serious between Eva and Albert. Eva meets his daughter, Tess, at lunch, and she's very annoying. Yeah, Tess kind of stinks. As soon as Eva says her daughter's going to Sarah Lawrence, Tess just goes, ugh, Sarah Lawrence has really gone downhill. (laughs) I think she says, is not what it used to be. is not what it used to be. It's so terrible. Yeah. (laughs) Like I said, she kind of sucks. She kind of sucks. Julie Louis Dreyfus has a very nice daughter, which was nice. A nice daughter who just wants her mom to be more involved in her life. Yeah, like, she gets upset at her mom for real reasons. And, like, Albert's daughter is crappy in ways that are believable for, like, a high school senior or, like, somebody on the verge of going to college. Especially someone on the verge of going to fashion design school. Right, like, she is plausibly terrible, but she is nonetheless terrible. Yes. And, like, when we find out that, like, Catherine Keener is her mom, spoiler, it's like, oh, yeah, like, Catherine Keener, the annoying poet, would raise this annoying kid. Yeah, it really does track. But that spoiler is the big twist, which is the ex-husband that Catherine Keener has been shitting on turns out to be Albert. Why are you shaking that? It spreads the butter around. You put more butter on that? No, I put... The regular butter. I asked for butter. I didn't oh. put more butter. Oh, I thought it came with butter. Eva puts it together. Nobody else has figured it out. Right. And she does the worst thing. And this is our third point. She doesn't tell anybody. Yeah, she just continues to be her friend. When Catherine Keener says, like, can we become friends? She says yes, even though at this point she knows. And she doesn't tell Albert that she's massaging his ex-wife. It's awful. It's such a bad decision. And she thinks it's a brilliant plan because she's like, oh my gosh, like, I have already been married and had a divorce, and who wants to do that again? So this is the way to, like, find out what the problems are. Like, I can find out what all the reasons are to get divorced from Albert. And then 
if I decide that I don't care about those things, then, like, this relationship is good. But if not, like, boy, I've dodged a bullet. Like, she thinks she's found the cheat code to this relationship. Right. She went to, like, Best Buy, and she bought, like, the book, The Secrets Revealed. Yeah. Remember when those used to be a thing? Like, video games? Like, there'd be, like, a magazine that's like, here's all the things in the game. Oh, yeah, I bought a few. I had the Kingdom Hearts one. That's the only way you could find all of the 101 Dalmatians. (laughs) What a weird game. What a weird game. Oh, my God. Yeah, so, Eva, because of learning this inside information is noticing things that she wouldn't have noticed otherwise and starting to get annoyed by them. Right, like, she's noticing the way that, like, he scrapes his chips along the side of the guacamole bowl to, like, get more guacamole. Avoid the onions, too. Or, like, she's starting to observe, like, oh, this dude has a lot of toothbrushes. This dude doesn't own night tables. All stuff that she, like, was basically fine with. She also starts making snotty comments about his weight and about his eating. After earlier having specifically said, like, you know, I wasn't sure that... I was going to be attracted to this guy, but, like, as I got to know him, he is great, and, like, I don't really care about it. But after hearing Catherine Keener talking about being frustrated with Albert's dietary habits, now, all of a sudden, Eva's being snotty about it. And never more snotty than at this dinner party at Tony Collette's house, where she's just, like, repeatedly humiliating him. It's so painful to watch. It's horrible. Where she's, like, bringing up some of the stuff that Catherine Keener told her. She announces at one point that she's going to buy him a diet book. And it's specific things that she probably shouldn't know, too. Yeah. To the point that when they're leaving and they're in the car together, Albert asks, why do I feel like I just spent the evening with my ex-wife? Right. Because it's all the things that his ex-wife complained about. Yeah. Great line. Great moment. Painful to watch. It's horrible because he's just a nice guy. I know. He's so sweet. This brings us to point four, though, where it all comes crashing and burning because Ava is dumb. I'm so, so, so sorry. I know this sounds corny, but you broke my heart. And I'm too old for that shit. (laughs) And the worst part, The worst part of it is that you made me look like an idiot in front of my daughter. I'm I'm the idiot. I'm the idiot. Look, I I got a lot I gotta do. She's been doing her best to dodge anybody catching her. But finally, one day, she is hanging out at Catherine Keener's house, and the daughter shows up. And this is the second time this has happened, because one time, Ava... Fully hid behind a bush. Yeah, and then I love when Catherine Gator's like, where were you? She just goes, oh, I had to check out this plant. It was so beautiful. So this time, though, Keener insists on introducing her, and the kid naturally is like, oh, what the heck? That's dad's girlfriend. this is a a fantastic moment of Julia Louis-Dreyfus being one of our finest actors. It's funny, it's horrifying, just how completely unconvincing Eva is when pretending not to have known. What? Albert's your ex-husband? What? It's so funny because the character is clearly trying so hard and failing completely. Nobody is convinced. Oh my god. It's so good. But also, as you said, horrifying. Yes. And then Albert comes in and sees her there too because he's picking up his daughter. And that whole scene repeats and he just leaves yeah and it's clear there that he's pretty much done Mm -hmm. 
she goes over to his place to try to argue like, no, like this was cool. Like this was totally fine. It, it, it was cool that I did that. And he's pointing out like, while you were busy deciding what to do about this, you were allowing Catherine Keener to poison this relationship. Yeah. It's very believable that they then break up. Yeah. And, it, and it's kind of heartbreaking too. He, he actually says that. He says like, it's, it's corny, but you broke my heart. Because you wanted them to work out. Yeah. And it's also just the thing of like, he had clearly been so excited about their relationship the whole time. And she just like got more and more toxic. Mm-hmm. I love that they don't get back together here. Oh my gosh, yes. Because so then basically we cut to she and her ex-husband dropping her daughter off at the airport. But we see that this relationship has helped her in some ways because she's able to speak up for herself more with her clients. I love the guy who doesn't help her carry the table up. And then when Albert asks, or Ben Falcone maybe asks, like, have you ever asked him for help? She's just like, no, I shouldn't have to. But then at the end of the movie, when she does ask him for help, he is like, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. And realizes yeah, he's clearly mortified. He's mortified that he has never offered before, which I love. And that's just where things are at until our fifth point. There's another time jump and it's Thanksgiving break. And she just drives by his house. She's supposed to be going to pick up her daughter from the airport to take her over to Tony Collette's for Thanksgiving dinner. And instead, just kind of slowly rolls past the house. She comes to a full stop, staring in the window. Full stop, just staring. And then they have a nice conversation. I've missed you. I missed you too. I should tell you, I bought some night tables. You did? No. (laughs) No, I didn't. Okay. A really nice conversation sitting on his porch steps. A stoop talk. Talking about how they've both been been dealing with their kids being off at college. And also talking about missing each other. Right. And I love that the movie ends on a note of they'll probably give it another try, but they don't even confirm that. No. Well, Mark, there's been enough said. Enough has been said. Do you find the romance believable? Heck yes. I think this movie is great. I think this. I think the romance is super believable. I think the only thing that's not believable is someone being as dumb as she is. But I also believe it. Here's the thing, Mark. People are stupid. People are stupid and think they're smart. I'm a nine on this. Movie. I'm a nine. I was leaning towards a ten, maybe. I was also leaning towards a ten until you said that thing where it's like, you know, the whole triangular circumstance of this is fairly implausible. Well, it makes sense to me that they'd be at the same party if they're ex-husband and ex-wife because they run in the same social circles. But it was a That's bad true. divorce, so it also makes sense that they wouldn't talk to each other. Yeah. Do we... Do we want to give this a 10? I think it's a 10. Okay, it's a 10. Do you think that Eva or Albert is dateable? Albert, 1,000%. Yes. Eva, maybe end of movie, she's learned her lesson, Eva. Maybe. I think, honestly, like, realistically, I think it's possible that some of Albert's tics would maybe annoy me a little bit, but I think probably not. Yeah. 
the nightstands thing. I, I mean, I would just buy nightstands. Yeah, but Catherine Keener did, and then he just didn't use them. Well, no, she said he used them. He didn't replace them when she moved them out when she moved. Oh, right. I will say, I have a lot of things piled in front of my nightstand, which is mostly just books that I intend to read. But it's like, yeah, I can buy nightstands, and then if we break up, I don't care that much whether he has nightstands anymore. Yeah. Um, do you think that Eva and Albert will stay together? I don't know. I kind of, I'm inclined to think more likely than not. I think so. Yeah. Unless Eva does something stupid again. Yeah. It's just hard to imagine anything that stupid that she could also do. Right. Now, Mark, if you had to pick one person in this movie to date, whom would you choose? I mean, I'm inclined to say Tony Collette, obviously. But you'd have to listen to Tony Collette have that accent. I know, that's the only problem. I don't know, there's not that many characters in this movie. And if you remove right. the teenagers, that's like a third of the characters gone. I think I'm gonna go with Tony Collette. Alright, I think I'm probably gonna go Albert. I mean, as you say, not a ton of options. So... A lot of movies we've covered have been adapted to musicals, which honestly hasn't happened in a while. Maybe we should think about this. Um, let's see. What was what was our last musical adaptation? I mean, it's crazy to me that The Stepford Wives has not been a musical. Yes. So there are some that we haven't recorded yet, so I'm not 100% certain. But I think the last musical adaptation we had was maybe Rebecca. Wow. I mean, Marry Me is a musical. Yeah, fair. And of, of course, there was the Dylan Dog rock opera. Can't oh, forget about that. Oh, of course. How could I forget? I don't know if you saw. I sent you a Snapchat. I saw a Dylan Dog DVD in the wild last week. I, I know. My God. But I do have to ask, should there be an enough said musical? Absolutely not. The virtue of this is, is realism. I would watch an enough said play. Yeah. Because it would just be the movie. Right. But like, I think this could be a good stage play. Yeah. I just know musical. No. I like musicals, but what makes them good is not what makes this movie good. Yeah. All right, I think that's it for Enough Said. Would recommend. It's on HBO Max. Check it out. It's just a really lovely movie. And it's 90 minutes. It's only 90 minutes. You got time. It's like shorter than two Stranger Things. Next week, we will be, I believe, dipping our toe back into the world of DreamWorks animation. This is a movie we've been promising slash threatening for <laughs> maybe a year. We'll find out. It might be one of our shortest episodes based off a quick Wikipedia summary scan. But who knows? We've thought that before and had long episodes. <laughs> Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook. Oh, we didn't say it. We're talking Turbo. Oh, we are talking Turbo. The snail racing animated children's movie. What if Cars was about snails? <laughs> Turbo! <laughs> Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod and email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts to help other people find the show. All right, last question. What's the best piece of dating advice we got from Enough Said? Honestly, like a kind of casual date can be fun. Like if you're eating brunch in your pajamas, that can be cute and fun. My advice don't mine your current boyfriend's ex-wife for information to sabotage your relationship before it starts that is good advice i suppose (laughs) well there you go until next time i'm a ginger and i'm gay so between the two of us we know everything there is to know about romance Bye. bye hi i'm alan cumming your host for the annual awards ceremony that honors movies and television made by grown-ups for grown-ups that speak to grown-up minds. And that's the truth. Join me and career achievement winner Lily Tomlin 
and sit back and enjoy the mystery of life. For the star-studded Movies for Grown-Ups Awards with AARP, the magazine on great performances.